Welcome to Thursday Night Talk, and I have a very special guest with me, uh, the one, the only Congressman Jared Huffman. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Good to be back with you, Tom. And as a bit of a programming note, unlike most Thursday Night Talks, um, this one is being pre-recorded, and that is to work around the town hall that Jared Huffman is having tonight. Um, So uh, if you're at the town hall event, I'm sorry you're missing this, but if you're at home, this is the next best thing. So um, to start off with... Uh, we have a lot of uh, Democratic candidates for 2020. Yeah. When are you going to announce your candidacy? <laughs> is this is it this show? You know, I'm going to make some news right here and now. You can cross me off the list. Oh, cross you yeah, off the list. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> shoot. Um, and I, I know it's early. We don't have the full field. Do you have a favorite yet? Uh, no, I, I'm really trying to resist the temptation to grab an early favorite because I like so many of them. And uh, I think they need to run a little. Okay. And I also have this situation where, you know, my great buddy and, and Washington roommate, Beto O'Rourke, may get in the race. And uh, so I need to at least let him make his decision before I even think about that. Yeah, let's, let's do some rumor mill. So um, you were roommates in D.C. with Beto. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a great campaign for uh, Ted Cruz's seat, came up just short. Uh, now he's getting pulled in two different directions. Some people are trying to get him yeah. to run for the uh, Senate seat, John Cornyn Senate seat. Other people are trying to get him into the 2020 presidential uh, race. Do you, if you were to advise him, so yeah. I'm sure he's a listener to the show. Uh, so <laughs> Beto, what 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 should he do? Well, uh, I wish it were as simple as that. I think Beto's being pulled in even more directions than that because I think he's got a family and young kids that may be pulling him. Uh, in a in a direction, I think he's got uh, other considerations. Uh, you know, Beto's a Beto's a pretty normal guy, believe it or not. And uh, the idea of just putting your life on this treadmill for the next uh, year and a half uh, is not something that he would do lightly. So I, I just think he's really weighing it seriously. Uh, and I have to say that initially, my advice to Beto was kind of leaning, "Don't do it," mm-hmm. because uh, I looked at it and I, I looked at the magic he created in his Senate race against Ted Cruz. You know, binary uh, choice: the awful Ted Cruz versus this young, great, unscripted uh, Beto O'Rourke, and uh, showing up in every corner of Texas. He just uh, captured the imagination of people in a great way, and it was magic. I'm not sure all of that translates over to a presidential race with a crowded field in a Democratic primary in Iowa. Um, but I also have uh, seen how how broad and passionate his following is, and it might actually transfer. So I don't know. I, I've kind of gotten to the point where I wouldn't even presume to advise him. Well, so you know the the most relevant example or the historical example for for Beto's case for president, Abraham right? Lincoln. Abraham yeah. Lincoln came in yeah. to a contested uh, convention, yeah. um, wasn't wasn't thought to be the the front runner, um, was the dark horse, and came out on top. Uh, so so you know maybe it's unfair to compare Beto to the greatest uh, living or not living greatest historic president. Yeah. Um, but uh, but if you checked in with Abraham Lincoln after a series of failed political campaigns, he probably didn't seem so great at that moment. Yeah. That's true. Uh, sometimes office makes the man. Yeah. All right. So let's let's do a quick one nice thing about each of the major candidates. So uh, Amy Klobuchar, who oh. and Nick Nick, uh, <laughs> my friend Nick always laughs at me for for being such a, a Klobuchar fan. I'm a, a, a Charmander. I don't know what to, <laughs> to to call myself. But yeah, Amy Klobuchar. 
Well, you just like her, right? Uh-huh. I mean, she's just charming. She's got this Midwestern uh, wholesomeness about her. She's also smart as can be and a serious lawyer and a serious person. There's a lot of depth and, and uh, talent beneath that, that uh, Minnesota nice. All right. I wouldn't want to work for her. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, apparently treat yourself a lot better. John Driscoll has been with you forever. I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I can ask I do John have some about running the- jokes with... Uh, with one of my staffers when like, uh, you know, she, she'll make a mistake. I'm like, what would Amy Klobuchar <laughs> say about that? All right. Uh, Cory Booker. Uh, Cory Booker, very talented, kind of uh, a lot of sizzle and flash. Uh, I, I'm not sure that he's built for the long haul in this race. I said one nice thing, but, but yeah. you, you decide to throw shade. That's fine. Sorry. Uh, um, I, I think he's really talented. I, I love his passion and yeah, uh, but he's sometimes strikes me as performing more than serving. And I, I think know. the I am Spartacus or whatever moment yeah, from yeah. Kavanaugh kind of reflected that uh, Elizabeth Warren. I like Elizabeth Warren. And what I really like about her is what you see is what you get. She's the real genuine article. She's been fighting these fights her entire life, way before she got into politics and she's never stopped. So what I like about her is the consistency, the authenticity, the drive. She stands for something Mm -hmm. and not everybody does. And, uh, the most recent addition to the race, uh, Bernie Sanders, well, we all know Bernie really well, right? And uh, I, I love Bernie's politics. I, I think he's been uh, ahead of uh, ahead of and on the right side of history on some really big and important issues. So I give him full credit for that. All right, and I'm I'm going to cut short. You missed all- Kamala Harris, but she's oh yeah, of course, I, the, of course, I was yeah. Kamala, Kamala Harris. Kamala has a lot to to add here too, and and the idea of an African American woman with a great personal story and. She's just got a genuine warmth to her, and, and she, too, uh, is very substantive. I, I think she's got a lot to offer, and, and she's had maybe the best start, uh, except for Bernie's $6 million in 24 <laughs> hours. But Kamala's had a great start to her campaign. And Bernie had that previous campaign list to work off of, so it oh, yeah. might be even more impressive. Kind of a running start for yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. And it's nice to be able to cheer for our, our home team candidate as, as Californians. All right, so I'm going to cut off the rest, uh, not to say that Tulsi Gabbard is not a, a major serious candidate. You were or... right to cut that off, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so to Bernie Sanders, yeah. uh, he has made uh, democratic socialism um, not a dirty word, or socialism not a dirty word. Um, your politics are often very close to his. Would you call yourself a democratic socialist? No, I, I wouldn't, but uh, I'm not freaked out about the label either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I think of socialism, I think of the government uh, taking over industries, uh, entire industries, state-run businesses and industries, and I'm not really much into that, uh, although there are situations like the health insurance industry that I think, you know, maybe the government should at least... Uh, get in there and and, and uh, compete with the private sector, if not replace the private sector for a basic level of health insurance for all Americans. And if you want to call that socialism, you can. But I just think it's something that the government can do that we need the government to do. And so I, I, I don't fixate on these labels uh, all that much. Okay. When that brings up um, the, the topic of health care, and there are a lot of various proposals being floated around, uh, for some sort of universal health care. Is there one that you stand behind, uh, a Medicare for mm-hmm. all or public choice? 
all of them, basically. A anything that moves us towards universal coverage um, and, and a more coherent uh, health insurance and healthcare delivery system, I'm going to be for. So I am supporting the, the full enchilada, uh, uh, Medicare for all. And I'm also supporting incremental uh, moves like early buy-in to Medicare, public option, getting Medicaid onto the exchanges as, a, as an option for people to purchase. There's all kinds of ways we can make incremental progress, too. Okay. Um, going back to labels. Mm -hmm. um, so we have no uh, self-avowed atheists in mm. Congress right now, according to um, Huffington, Huffington Post in in January 2019, you did found uh, the Congressional Free Thought uh, mm -hmm. Caucus. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, and, and I have publicly embraced the uh, label, if you will, of a non-religious humanist, mm -hmm. or you could call it non-theist. Uh, the only reason I haven't uh, embraced the label atheist is I find it a little bit, uh, just personally I'm uncomfortable, it seems a little arrogant to me. Uh-huh. And maybe that's just, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. I have a lot of friends who are atheists and, and proud of it. But uh, I don't know. I, I mean, there's all sorts of mysteries in the universe that I'm, I'm not totally certain about. Uh, I just don't believe any of the precepts of organized religion. They don't work for me. And, and humanism really works for me, which is basically there's good without God. And there's a whole series of, of uh moral values and principles that uh, humanism stands for that I think most good people in this country would would kind of nod along with and feel very good about. All right. So what 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 does the Congressional Free Thought Caucus stand for or do? Yeah, the Free Thought Caucus is basically to defend the line of separation between church and state and the secular character of our government, which uh, is under assault these days. I've I've got a lot of colleagues, especially across the aisle, that. Uh, want to bring religion right into uh, public policy and into our government. To give you one of uh, many examples, just a couple of weeks ago in the Natural Resources Committee, we debated the rules for the committee in this new Congress. And uh, we debated whether witnesses who testify before the committee should have to swear an oath that ends in the words, so help me God. And I was one of the few who said, that's crazy. I think it's unconstitutional. I don't know how you could ask a scientist. I mean, if we were doing a climate change hearing and you call one of the many astrophysicists who actually understand the way our climate works, who happen to be atheists, and most of them are, by the way, if you talk to, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and others, they're prominent humanists and atheists. Um, how can you say they have to take an oath to something they don't believe in? Or how could you ask a Hindu witness to swear an oath to a monotheistic God that they don't believe in? They're polytheistic. Uh, so there's just an arrogance and an unconstitutionality, but I lost that argument, and it's a good example of one of the many things we're constantly dealing with, where the secular character of our government, which I think is a big deal, I think it's something the founders passionately wanted, uh, is under encroachment all the time. So you you talked about some folks on the other side of the aisle um, who may take a little bit of, of a different stance than you uh, on on this issue. Do you have a a best friend? from the Republican Party? Who's I've your best bunch. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would single out one best friend, but but one guy that I get along with really well is Jeff Fortenberry from uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Very conservative, very deeply devout Catholic. I mean, 
on paper, we don't have a lot in common, but we're, we're great friends and we talk all the time uh, about all these. He's even come to some of my Free Thought Caucus um, meetings to engage in conversation. Where's the common ground there? What do you talk about? Uh, I think the common ground is that he's intellectually curious and interested in dialogue. Um, there are some issues where we have some common ground. So he's he has supported this uh, cross-country um, national trail that would go through his district and connect to both coasts. And I think that kind of thing is, is easy to work on across party lines. He's also supported arms control and um, just kind of our, our multinational engagement in the world communities, big on foreign policy and diplomacy. So we got a lot to talk about uh, on those issues. So um, imagine that he was getting primaried, or not primaried, he, he's up in a general election against a, a Democrat candidate. Yeah. Do you think that there's any value in Democrats supporting Republicans who are capable of uh, of working across the aisle? Should should we Democrats yeah. um, try to promote bipartisanship by by supporting people who are bipartisan? It's it's a really good question. And, and look, um, Jeff Fortenberry, who I just mentioned, has one of the more conservative voting records in the Congress. So so maybe uh, not maybe not Jeff. <laughs> he's probably not the best example of this. But uh, I'll tell you who would be a good example is a Republican who we defeated in the midterms in, in Miami, Florida, uh, Carlos Curbella. Uh, fairly moderate by today's standards within the Republican Party. Joined me on some climate-related stuff in the last Congress. And, and he and I led a letter, for example, pushing back on, on uh, Scott Pruitt and the EPA's attempt to uh, do away with California's Clean Air Act authority to set clean car standards. Um, so he, he was on the right side of a, a number of really important issues that I work on. And, you know, part of me uh, was sad to see him go, but that's the type of Republican that we take out in blue wave elections, the, the moderate ones, because they're in the districts that are the most competitive um, I'm working with a guy from uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia right now, Brian Fitzpatrick, a, one of the last of the moderate Republicans, and he's with me on uh, protecting uh, the Arctic Refuge against drilling. He's with me on a, a resolution we're calling the Still in Paris resolution that I think we're actually going to pass out of the House to say the United States, the Congress wants the U.S. to stay in the Paris Climate Accord. So I, I'm, I love working with Brian. He's great. But he'll be targeted in, in the next election because he's in one of those districts. So if we keep having parties increasingly moving to the the base of the party, either further to the left or further to the right, yeah. what is that going to leave our country? How is that? How are we going to ever come back from this? I, I feel yeah. like there's uh, an increasing divide even here locally between conservatives and and liberals or progressives. It, I think it, it is unfortunate, and I think there's a number of factors. Obviously, the the American people themselves have become more polarized. There's been some studies and uh, polling that demonstrate that. The, the media, uh, also, especially cable news, you know, this is an entire industry that exists to get people hyperventilating, uh, you know, within their respective political camps, and so uh, it, it would be great if we could rediscover some sort of sensibility in between those extremes that just, you know, enabled good people, whatever their party label may be, to to get elected. But it's pretty hard right now. Um, you have previously supported uh, the impeachment of our president, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you still think is a good idea? Well, it's, it's absolutely necessary. It's not just a good idea. I think uh, Donald Trump is an existential threat to our country. Um, I don't think 
we're there yet. Uh, so I, I sort of break it down into two questions. Would I support, would I vote to impeach Donald Trump in a heartbeat? I would have voted to impeach Donald Trump two years ago. I already had seen enough to believe that this man was unfit for office and, and had committed high crimes and misdemeanors and abuses of power. Uh, but the country has to come along. A purely partisan impeachment process would be very, very damaging. Um, and, and probably wouldn't result in removing him from office. So what's what's the difference then? So if, if the country's not here yet, if we're not at a place where Republicans can support the yeah. impeachment of Trump, does it make sense to sponsor impeachment legislation? Is is there a tension there? Well, I look, I've co-sponsored articles of impeachment because I was asked to do it, and I sort of saw that as a question. Do I believe impeachment is warranted? I, I'm just being honest. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not where I'm putting my energy. It's not the first thing I talk about everywhere I go, and I'm not urging my Democratic colleagues or anyone else to make that their highest priority. What I am pushing is accountability, uh, which I believe will lead to removal from office, either by impeachment or by uh, resignation. So protecting the Mueller investigation, and we may be at a critical juncture in, in getting information out of that. Uh, pushing our own congressional investigations, which we can finally do now that we have a Democratic Congress with subpoenas and with contempt of Congress power. And you're going to start seeing some major uh, information uh, gleaned from those efforts very soon. So uh, having been um, out of the majority in the House for a bit, Mm -hmm. um, have you learned anything from the Republicans that would caution against uh, taking a, a very aggressive stance in investigations or impeachment. Yeah. Um, and can you talk about that? Got to be credible. Got to mm-hmm. be serious. It's got to be about the facts. Um, in this case, I, th- I think there's no shortage of material to work with. We have to get to the bottom of Trump's financial ties to uh, Russian interests and oligarchs and, and also the Saudis and potentially others that could be compromising his judgment. Uh, we've got to get to the bottom of his likely obstruction of justice in trying to undermine these investigations into him and his family. Uh, And we've got to hold him to the letter of the law on things like the emoluments clause. I'm suing Donald Trump right now in in court. I'm one of about 200 members of Congress uh, suing him under the emoluments clause because he has refused to really divest his interests. And he is effectively taking gifts uh, and um, remuneration from lots of foreign governments. So after Donald Trump uh, declared a state of emergency, what was it, last week? Gosh, time yeah, yeah. It really goes slow during the Trump administration. Um, last week, I believe that you uh, sent out a, a letter saying, we'll see you in court. Um, what's the status of, of the Democratic response uh, to Trump's emergency declaration? Well, the lawsuits have already begun. Uh, the state of California and 15 other states, I believe, were the first out the door. But I think the ACLU and others also have lawsuits uh, that have uh, been initiated. And, and I will be in there for sure. I'm sure that the House uh, majority will vote to initiate a lawsuit on behalf of the House of Representatives. And I'll proudly uh, support that. Okay. Um, so... Looking at the state of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, a lot of commenters say that there is a tension within the Democratic Party. Are we trying to move back to a party that could retake uh, the Midwest, that can appeal to more uh, rural or suburban um, white middle class voters? 
or is the Democratic Party moving towards a more urban party, a more uh, multicultural, uh, more highly educated party? Mm -hmm. Do you see that tension? Uh, I think there's always a tension about which of those to prioritize. We're a big party. We're a big tent. And ideally, we would be able to speak to both of those constituencies. Um, but we periodically have folks, you know, passionately feeling we should abandon one constituency and prioritize the other. I think we've got to do both. I, I think it's a bit of a false choice. How do we talk to both? Well, I think Democrats stopped trying to talk to rural America a while back. And, you know, up here in Humboldt County, I think a lot of people totally get what I'm saying in that regard. It, it seems like the issues that we bring up are largely driven uh, by urban concerns and urban interests. And uh, there's a lot that we could offer to rural America. When we talk about infrastructure, it can't just be mass transit systems and high-speed rail. Uh, you know, it has to include broadband internet service, and it has to include rural communities. Uh, we've got to look at things like rangeland management and forest land management as part of our carbon strategy. Uh, and that can offer jobs to rural America. And, and economic development is just a hard thing in rural America and in the places like the North Coast that I represent. So uh, some of these strategies can really, I think, resonate. When we talk about um, clean energy, for example, Hillary Clinton didn't really even try to offer much to Appalachia. And she had that one unfortunate statement about, I'm sorry, we're just going to put a lot of coal miners out of work. And she didn't do a very good job of offering much. Um, I think we've got to be very proactive about the kind of dislocation that will only be felt in some places. And much of it is already happening. But um, Democrats have to speak to those places because those those communities and those voters are ours for the take. And I believe if we would just speak to them and show up and care a little bit. So who uh, within your party do you do you see doing a good job of, of speaking to these voters? Yeah, there are several. So I, I think Sherrod Brown obviously has dialed that in pretty nicely. He's managed to survive in Ohio. And 2018, as much as it was a blue wave in most places, really was not in Ohio. It was almost the opposite and he, he did just fine. So uh, we need to take a look at how he's doing what he does because it's working. Um, I, I think Amy Klobuchar may be able to connect uh, with a lot of those folks as well. Uh, and I think better O'Rourke will simply because um, he shows up, he's earnest uh, he doesn't talk down to people, and there, there's an authenticity to Beto and, and a genuine uh, compassion and empathy that I think will, uh, is, it's very Bobby Kennedy-like. And, you know, we all remember the, the stories of Bobby Kennedy in West Virginia. I sort of see the potential for Beto uh, doing something like that. So you are one of the co-sponsors of the, the Green New Deal legislation mm -hmm. that's been introduced uh, in both the House and the Senate. Um so the Green New Deal has been critiqued uh, by folks on the right um, as being kind of wishy-washy and vague. It's just a, a set of good feelings. Um, is that is that a fair critique or is there more meat behind the... I think even calling it a critique is being generous. They okay. have completely misrepresented what is in this this document. Uh, and yeah, uh, on the one hand, they'll say it's it's this wishy-washy, dreamy thing. On the other hand, they'll try to say it's this socialist prescription to take over every aspect of our life. So, you know, they're kind of having all sides of this misrepresentation exercise. And what they haven't done is taken the time to actually read the darn thing. Uh, if you do, uh, you will see that what it is is an attempt to set some goals and a very broad policy framework 
to meet this existential challenge we face that the, the world scientific community is telling us we face in the next 10 to 12 years of finding a way to decarbonize our, decarbonize our uh, economy. That's a big, tall order. And finally, someone has at least taken a stab at it. So I, I'm proud of, of what's in there. Now, the Green New Deal is not a bill. It's not legislation. It's a resolution. So, you know, I'm going to go to work with a bunch of other colleagues on all of the different specific policies and specific bills that would, I think, advance some of those goals and aspirations in the resolution. But uh, it's important for people to understand, you know, what is actually in it and what's not. And you're part of the select committee on on the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Can you tell, tell us about that select committee? Yes. So I will just say Nancy Pelosi had decided to create a climate select committee long before anyone was talking about the Green New Deal, long before uh, our dynamic new colleague AOC arrived on scene and, and brought her energy to the subject. So uh, this was not her reacting to anything or, or kind of trying to outflank the Green New Deal. Uh, this was something she had done when she was speaker in 2008. And she had told me, you know, at least six months before the election that she planned to, to bring it back. And it kind of given me a heads up that I was someone she would want to serve on that. Um, it's not everything everyone wanted. Uh, AOC and others had asked that it be given full legislative and subpoena and other powers. Um, now, they're a little bit new to the Congress, and they may not fully appreciate how inconsistent that is with the existing committee structure, because you've already got all these committees with jurisdiction over climate change that have chairs that have waited years in the wilderness to grab the gavel and go to work, and to simply create a new committee and totally subvert them and circumvent them, uh, people would have never let that fly. The caucus wouldn't have gone for it. And for pretty valid reasons, not for nefarious fossil fuel reasons, but for just sort of institutional, functional reasons. And I, I actually think AOC and the Sunrise Movement and others have sort of come to understand uh, some of those things. But this this select committee can do really important things. Uh, we can have hearings that really delve into these issues in a serious way, raise the profile, uh, shape the debate. All these other committees that have jurisdiction, uh, we got to make sure that their work um, – is coordinated and that the totality of all those efforts actually meets the bigger challenge we face, which the Green New Deal resolution is is aimed at. So I think the select committee can kind of have a coordinating role in that regard too. And that's, that's important. So um, one thing that has been pointed out by some of uh, the folks on the left critiquing the Green New Deal is a lack of emphasis on carbon taxes. Do you support broadly uh, a tax on carbon? So the Green New Deal resolution refers to carbon pricing. It includes it, but it doesn't say ex, you know, specifically it's going to be this type of carbon tax versus this kind of fee and dividend or cap and trade. There's all these different ways to do it. I think they were smart to not pick a winner uh, in, in this carbon pricing menu. Uh, we're not sure which of these options is going to be vi- uh, viable. And we're also, uh, I believe, way too deep into the problem to solve it entirely with carbon taxing. Um, carbon taxes take a long time for the market to work out, for the price to be settled, for you know everything to adjust to it. And we don't have a lot of time. So th- this is one reason I'm pushing back against uh, my friends in the Citizens Climate Lobby that are pushing this specific fee and dividend bill that's been introduced. It is bipartisan, that's great news, but it's only the energy sector. And the trade-off for beginning to price carbon under that bill is you freeze all uh, regulations under the Clean Air Act. 
we can't do that. We've got to, We've still got to do things like keep oil in the ground by you know shutting down fossil fuel extraction. We're going to have to have a suite of strategies that are way beyond just carbon pricing if we're going to get there in the time frame that we have to act. Do you think that we are going to get there? I think we got to do as much as we possibly can. You know, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Well, so you, um, in, in addition to supporting the Green New Deal, uh, you also serve on the House Natural Resources Committee, and you have um, some exciting uh, wilderness legislation. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about your wilderness bill? And I should say that it, it's more than a wilderness bill. Thank you. Thank uh, you. It, you just it saved has me a, big, a lot of explanation. It has a big, long title, so maybe you want to give us a big, long title and the rundown of what it does. It is a long title. I think it's called the Northwest California uh Working Forest Recreation and Wilderness Act. Did I get that right? Something. Something like that. I, I just call it the Wilderness Bill. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it has working forests in there. In fact, it has hundreds of thousands of acres of working forest in, in the South Fork Trinity uh, and, and Mad River watersheds where you have these second and third growth uh, plantation forests that are not healthy, that are at great risk of catastrophic fire because uh, they're dense and they're all the same age trees. And we can go in and do some smart, sustainable thinning, uh, have some shaded fuel breaks, do other things that'll make for a more resilient forest and create some jobs and retain the revenue from those projects in the watershed to fund other programs. We've got to clean up marijuana sites. We've got to do all kinds of things in those watersheds because um, those are really important coho salmon uh, rivers. So I, I think it's an opportunity to achieve multiple objectives in a in a really interesting way. Uh, I'm trying to explain that to some of our friends in Trinity County who just see the word wilderness and they kind of get spooked, and uh, that's been a challenge. We do include an awful lot of wilderness designations as well, but we've been really careful on the the areas we do designate in this bill. We're not closing off any roads or trails. Nobody's losing access. 100% of this land is already in federal ownership. A lot of uh, folks at the town halls we've had, for example, think that we're gobbling up a bunch of private property and, and uh, making it into wilderness. It's, that's not at all what we're doing. This is all either in Forest Service or, or BLM ownership already. Um, and then uh, lots of benefits, I think, if you like recreation or the uh, recreation economy. Uh, new visitor centers, possible new trails. Um, you know, when you add it all up, I think it'll be very good, not just for the environment, uh, but for fire resiliency and for the economy in these areas. All right. So um, we now have a democratically controlled House. Uh, we still have the Republican controlled Senate. What are the chances of it getting passed in this uh, congressional session? Uh, I think there's a good chance. Uh, there's there's a lot of support for this bill. Uh, there's a pocket of opposition, primarily in Trinity County. I'm not giving up on working with them. I'm going to keep meeting and, and trying to work through these issues. Um, but a, a lot of support for this. And I think it's the kind of bill that can pass the House. I'm pleased to say that Kamala Harris is introducing a Senate companion bill, has already done so. No, actually, she hasn't. She had, had uh, committed to do so. But we'll, we'll get that in in the weeks ahead. Um, or this, you can make your endorsement of her conditional on this. Well, there you go. That's how it works. Right now, right, this, this I is am not DC that transactional. Game, right? yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so you've also done a lot of work trying to get funding for our North Coast for the Last Chance Grade project. Mm -hmm. um, give thank us the, the one minute for what is yeah. Last Chance Grade. Yeah. So thanks. You've, you've been involved in that as well as part of our, our ad hoc group, our stakeholders group. Yeah, the last chance grade, anybody who drives between here and Crescent City knows, uh, is 
uh, continuously being patched by Caltrans because it is sliding into the ocean, literally sliding as we speak, very slowly, sometimes a little faster than, than that. Um, but it's a moving hillside, and it's, it's eventually going to completely fail, which would be catastrophic. So what we're trying to do is do the hard work of getting ahead of that uh, catastrophe by identifying an alternate route that everyone can live with, everyone from um, you know, the local governments and the tribes and the private landowners and the environmental groups like EPIC um, to the, the various uh, authorities like Caltrans and the federal transportation officials. We got them all. Uh, in the room, we've identified some preliminary alternate routes. And the good news is uh, it looks like Senator McGuire and Assemblymember Wood are close to, if they haven't already, securing the funding for the environmental review that will be needed to now dial that in and see if we can find a preferred route. Then I got to go find a few hundred million dollars to pay for it. A small task. All right. You are listening to Thursday Night Talk. I have the wonderful uh, Congressman Jared Huffman with me. So uh, today you introduced uh, new legislation concerning the Yurok tribe. Can you tell us a little bit about what that legislation will do? Yeah. Well, it basically uh, expands their reservation and uh, takes some land into trust that is very significant to the Yurok tribe. Uh, also codifies uh, their status for cooperating, for being a cooperative, a cooperating agency on projects within Redwood National Park that could affect them and their reservation. So, you know, I could give you examples of that, but uh, there are uh, issues that occur just outside their reservation in the park in areas that are very sacred to them, where they go to do religious ceremonies and other things, and uh, they would like to uh, have a codified assurance that they'll be consulted when the park does things that affect those type of areas and activities. So that's basically it. It's very exciting stuff. Okay. Um, well, so that, that gives us a little bit of a local focus. Um, when you're in Humboldt County, Mm -hmm. what, what do you like to go do? Do you ever have time, you know, to go out to a restaurant or go out to a beach? Do you have a favorite restaurant or beach or, or place to, to, to be? Yeah, I think as folks are tuning into your show tonight, I'll be having dinner at Gabriel's tonight. Oh, okay. So that's so a if good you want to go bother, let me just make a plug there. <laughs> yeah, you can come and uh, that's okay. Uh, look, I wish I had more time when I come up here because um, there was a time when my kids were a little younger when we would plan family trips in conjunction with my work trips or campaign trips, and we would set aside time and go to Trees of Mystery, and you know, I'd do more fishing and other things that I love to do. Uh, it just seems that uh, it's harder and harder to do that. So often I am just driving up here probably faster than I should and working my tail off um, for as long as I can and then driving back very late at night without the kind of uh, uh, activities that really this place offers and that I love to do. Are you ever jealous of some of your colleagues who have a more compact district? Sometimes, but you'll never hear me complain. I love it. I mean, I, honestly, I've I've come to love the drive today, going north on 101, uh, with the the South Fork uh, next to me. The sun was out. It was that iridescent green, and it's full of water. I mean, you just can't beat that. So, um, you are introducing this wilderness legislation. It it's going to potentially put um, hundreds of thousands of acres into wilderness, which is a wonderful legacy. Looking at your career so far in Congress and thinking forward to the future, what what do you want your legacy to be? Do you want yeah. to have the uh, the Rayburn building renamed the, the Huffman building? <laughs> oh, God forbid. And I say that as a non-religious person. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No, I, I don't have any delusions of grandeur like that. I don't need to have, uh, you know, there was a time when members of Congress got a lot of that stuff. I, I can't drive anywhere up here without seeing Don Clausen's name or even Mike Thompson's name out on the, the, the refuge. Uh, I, I doubt that there'll be anything that, that bears my name, and I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But if I can make a difference, um, you know, to the extent that I can, this wilderness bill would be great. I'd feel great about that, you know, looking back years from now. Um, I think the Yurok legislation means an awful lot to a tribe that, that deserves that kind of legislation. And uh, these fisheries issues that I work constantly on uh, are passions of mine. Uh, I'm really trying to make sure we get those dams out on the Klamath River. And, you know, that won't be my legacy. Other people kind of made that happen. But I'm working very hard to keep it on track and, and make sure it actually does happen. And it's just kind of the roll-up of all these different things. I don't have any notions of something with my name on it. Okay. Well, so you have a, a fairly safe district. Um, I would I would venture to say that you could have this job for life. You could be uh, the Don Young, uh, the... Uh, you you can be here until you're uh, long in the tooth and gray haired. Um, do you want to have a different job? Are you are you going to be mm. here for life? Well, I love it right now, and I will tell you, I love it even more being in the majority. Uh, since January, in this new House majority, it feels like a different job. It really does. I mean, I am uh, deciding what hearings we're going to have, what bills we're going to prioritize, what witnesses we're going to call. Uh, we're in charge, and it's great. Uh, if I can stay in the majority, I could imagine doing all kinds of things in the years ahead, and I can't imagine a better job than that. Um, now, if somebody dangled Secretary of Interior in front of me, uh, I'd have to give that some hint, serious hint. thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be fantastic. I, I couldn't think of a, a better job for you. But that's that's about you know one of the few things that would pique my interest. Otherwise, I think I got the greatest job around. So let's say Kamala Harris um, gets a Democratic nomination and um, becomes president. You have no interest in that Senate seat? I wouldn't get it. I, I'm realistic enough, Tom. To, <laughs> sure. I mean, if you'd who's, hand me who's a Senate next in line? Probably a dozen people. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm realistic in terms of my political ceiling. I am a straight white male from Northern California uh, <laughs> in a huge state with a huge bench of talent and diversity uh, and all these different constituencies that have to align. And I, I'm just realistic about how all that works. I would never win a statewide race in California. Um, and I don't think a governor would ever hand me a Senate seat, you know, because a senator departed. But any member of the House would love to be a senator. I mean, it, you're, you're one of 100 instead of one of 435. So it's basically just the same job, but with a lot more power. That sounds great, but it's not going to happen for me. So, so no theatrics to get your name. I, I'm in the not. News po- more I'm often. not auditioning for a Senate seat. I'm not uh, plotting for one. Uh, I'm. I'm just trying no to be quid the best pro congressman. No. no. Okay. No. Okay. Um, so, so you're also a human be, besides mm-hmm. uh, just being a congressman. Try to be. You try to be. Uh, do you ever have time to binge watch anything? Oh yeah. What do you watch? Totally. So. Um, I mean, over the years, I've, The Wire, I think, is the best show ever made. I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, the first two seasons of House of Cards were great, and then it went off the rails. Uh-huh. Um, I just finished this show on Netflix called Turn, about Washington spies in the American Revolution. Could uh-huh. not stop watching that. It was right, that's a good so one. addictive. I, I mean, it was just great. Uh, and then, you know, some, some dog and cat. I, I'm actually watching The Comiskey Method right now. Oh, uh-huh. 
uh, on Netflix, which is uh, Michael Douglas and uh, I can't think of the other guys, Alan Arkin. Uh, and it's awesome, just the dialogue and the, the, the chemistry between those two. A couple of grumpy old men, basically, but it's a great show. So what is what is life like when you're in D.C.? Is your wife back here on the coast, and so mm-hmm. you're just bored and alone and watching things on your computer? <laughs> um, yeah, and more often than not, just reading and uh-huh. catching up, digging out from the endless reading that I have to do. So it's not glamorous. Um there's, there's an awful lot of travel time back and forth. And yeah, my family's back here. Um, so and I'm not sure if this is true because this is from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Anyone can write it. Um, it lists uh, winemaking as a hobby. Is this true? It was true. It was true. You yeah. don't have the time now? I have not. Uh, yeah. Since I became a member of Congress, you can't know if you're going to be around when it's time to harvest and to press and to... Do the oh, other so you were growing, did. you were even growing your own grapes? Well, now I was getting them you okay. know, from the, from the field or from the, uh, from the crush uh, uh-huh. at the vineyard. Uh, and there's places where home winemakers can, can arrange that. But uh, it's very, you know, there's a moment where the sugar is just what the bricks is right where it needs to be. And you got to either be there or you are not making wine that year. So I love winemaking. I'm someday I'm going to come back to it. All right. Maybe, yeah. maybe when you retire, yeah. you know, when you're 80 something, yeah. you got this seat for life. All right. Um, so what, what is the most important lesson you've learned and who gave it to you um, in the house? Well, there's so many lessons. And one of the great things about uh, my time in Congress is that I'm surrounded by these iconic people that I can learn from all the time. Uh, George Miller, uh, 40 years in Congress, was one of my mentors. Um, if I could point to one thing I learned from George, he had this saying, uh, make your own weather. Uh, don't just wait around for uh, the stars to perfectly align and, and figuring, figure out what to do. Just if you have a passion, if you want to do something, just go make your own weather. I kind of like that. How do you make your own weather? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, you're still trying to figure that out? <laughs> well, you know, uh, let's let's take last chance grade as, uh-huh. as an example, right? And we could all sit around waiting for tragedy to happen, then figure out what to do about it or we could think proactively uh, how to get ahead of this. And so I've tried to make my own weather on that through the, the stakeholder group that we've pulled together. I'm trying to do it on the Eel River and the Potter Valley project right now, rather than wait to see what happens with, you know, PG&E's relicensing and their bankruptcy and 20 years of litigation, perhaps. Um, can I get people in both basins together? And even though I don't have the authority to tell them what to do, uh, can I facilitate a settlement that is a two-basin solution that might restore fish passage on the Eel River and also do it in a way that, that doesn't just unplug water for everyone on the Russian River Basin. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of trying to make my own weather there. All right. Well, let, let, let's do uh, the Potter Valley Project mm-hmm. for a second. Uh, you can't tell people what to do. If you could tell people what to do, what do you want done with the Potter Valley Two-basin solution. Uh, what, does that, what does that mean? What, do, yeah. What do, it, do, does at least a dam come out? It, it absolutely could. And we've got pr- preliminary analysis that suggests you could take out Scott Dam, have a run-of-the-river diversion that, it, especially if you reoperate Lake Mendocino on the Russian River side and modernize the way the, the Corps of Engineers releases water there, theoretically, you could meet the water needs on that side without Scott Dam. If you can do that, you have the potential to bring everybody in both basins together around something that might attract state and federal funding. Uh, and and it could be viable. Uh, not gonna. It's not gonna be popular with the folks who have vacation homes around Lake Pillsbury. We've got to figure out a way to 
bring them along too. And that may not be easy, but that's the kind of thing I'm looking at. And, and that's what I'd, you know, I, I can sort of see a path to get there. Okay. Where, where are we on um, the Klamath Dam removal and how, how are you helping that effort? Yeah, so I just met with uh, this new entity uh, that will sort of take the reins and own the project going forward. Uh, they feel like we're, we're still more or less on track uh, to begin taking these dams down in uh, maybe about a year and a half. Uh, there are some complications, and uh, it's probably way too technical and arcane to to do it justice in, in a few seconds. But, you know, I think the bottom line is we're more or less on track to get these dams out. And I feel like it's going to happen. That's great. Um, other, other things coming up um, that you're going to work on that we should be aware of on the North Coast? Well, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the things that we think we can do in this Congress, even with this president. Um, and so I'm on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. We're going to be uh, thinking big, you know, trillions of dollars. And I want to make sure that it includes rural communities, that it includes coastal resilience. I've got facilities um, up and down my district, critical infrastructure that's threatened by sea level rise and extreme weather. Uh, those who have been to the Bay Area are familiar with Highway 37, critical North Bay artery. It was closed for four days because of uh, a storm that uh, caused a levee failure. These are rinky-dink old little non-Corps of Engineer levees that are protecting this highway, and they fail. Uh, so uh, the highway is almost at sea level, and it was underwater. So four days without Highway 37, that's a big deal in the Bay Area. And the only way we're going to um, address that is to elevate it, probably about a $3 billion project. And there's no way that any one of the communities that depend on it could afford that. So the federal government has to come through. Same with Last Chance Great. I mean, Del Norton, Humboldt County are never going to be able to pay for Last Chance Great. Never, ever, ever. No. No. Um, all right. So I'm going to give you one last question. Then I know that, um, John is going to try to drag you away from me. Uh, so you, you have a big district. Mm-hmm. You represent, don't ask me what my favorite part is. I, I won't ask you what your favorite part, um, cause we know it's up here. Uh, <laughs> right. so it, it really spans a lot of, uh, of different types mm-hmm. of communities. So we have the very rural from Trinity County and, uh, Del Norte County, uh, to a little bit more urban in Humboldt County to uh, Bay Area commuter cities down yeah. in uh, the southern part of your district. Is, is it is it a, a strange tension? Do you ever have a tension between the needs of, uh, of different uh, communities in your own district? And do we talk differently? Do we think about things differently? Um, between when you're when you're having a town hall up here, are you getting different questions than when you're getting a town hall in Marin or uh, Santa Rosa? I find there's more similarity than you would think. Um, look, people are people, and communities are communities, and there's just an awful lot we have in common. Uh, and it's kind of a fun part of my job, to tell you the truth, Tom, to be able to go down to uh, metropolitan, you know, Southern Marin or, you know, the suburbs of Santa Rosa and Sonoma County and explain what life is like in rural Del Norte and Humboldt County and on Indian reservations and the challenges that we're dealing with up here. Um, I, I feel like that's just a, a very fun and challenging part of my job. 
but there are a few issues where, you know, w- when you talk about guns, it's a fairly different conversation down there than in many parts, more rural parts of my district. Okay. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Jared. Or, or Oh, excuse me. That was too presumptuous. Yeah. No, Congressman Jared works. Jared, Jared works, works great. Yeah. Hey, I'm on a first name basis. All right. There we go. All right. Thank you so much. Um, and we'll have you in uh, maybe next time you come up. I would appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. Then. Thank you so much. Thanks. So uh, Congressman Huffman just walked out the door. Uh, so thank him for those 50 minutes. Uh, he's a busy man and he had other places to be, including his uh, town hall this evening. So joining me uh, to fill the rest of this time is Nick Thomas, uh, the president of the local Young Democrats chapter, um, also on the Democratic Central Committee. And he is our um, political uh, wunder, wunderkind and uh, our political whiz kid. Um, so, Nick, thank well, you for joining that me. That might be overstating the fact, but we'll see. All right. So um, we have some new uh, news locally, uh, new exciting political news. Um, Rex Bone, um, supervisor for the 1st District, just got a challenger in Alan McCloskey. Initial thoughts? Um, that's going to be a tough race. Uh, uh, who Rex, is Alan McCloskey? Let's start off with. Uh, so Alan McCloskey is a local progressive activist. Uh, he's involved with the National Union of Healthcare Workers at St. Joe's. He is involved in the Humboldt Progressive Democrats, um, and he is also a member of the Democratic Central Committee. And so he just announced um, his candidacy for for the supervisor's seat. Uh, he's jumping in early, right? So this is akin to all these folks getting in to the presidential race, and it's only 2019. Um, that election will be in 2020, just like the presidential election. And that election is moving up. In past years, our primary was always in June. Mm-hmm. Next year, it's going to be in March, beginning of March. Okay, so, so there's a reason maybe why a- you jump in early. Absentee ballots will start going out in February, so and, it's, it's coming up. <laughs> and in Humboldt County, we have the weird thing that if a candidate gets 50% or more in a primary, they don't need to move on and have an, another fight in the general election. So uh, if you're if you're Rex Bone, if you're the current uh, county supervisor, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? If I'm Rex Bone, um, it's a cons- it's a fairly conservative district in Humboldt. Uh, the first district is generally more conservative. It's going to be a tough race. Rex Bone certainly has some money stored away from his past campaigns, but you never know. There's a lot of energy on the progressive side of things right now in Humboldt County politics. So certainly don't want to write off any race. And Estelle Fennell uh, is the other Board of Supervisor member uh, up for re-election in 2020. Oh, and Mike is probably too, right? Yeah. So uh, next cycle, you have the third district with Mike, you have the second with Estelle, and then the first with Rex. All of those are up. Have you heard any rumors on potential candidates, or are there rumors out there about potential candidates against either Mike or Estelle? I haven't seen anyone ready to jump in. Okay. There are a few people who are considering, but they're not close to announcing yet. But it could be around the corner. You never know. Yeah, right. All right. So uh, we we talked uh, a little bit with Jared uh, about the 2020 race. Um, he uh, declined to choose a favorite at this time. Um, besides throwing a little bit of shade on Cory Booker, which I thought was, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Um, do you, do you have a favorite for the 2020 election? Well, it's really tough. Okay. So back in 2016, initially I wanted Elizabeth Warren to run. She was like the person I was really hoping would jump into the race. Uh, I ended up supporting Bernie Sanders. Currently, I think those are my top two. Uh, we'll see if anyone can break through. Um, 
someone like Beto O'Rourke may be a little more conservative if he does jump in for a Democratic primary, but he was certainly exciting in his Senate race. Um, Sherrod Brown certainly doesn't align um, with progressives on all issues, but he does speak on a lot of economic issues, and uh, he could be a formidable candidate if he does decide to run. Granted, the downside with Sherrod Brown is we'd lose a Senate seat, and that would be painful in Ohio. Yeah, so Senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown. Um, How will the, um, the change in California's primary, we are moving up, as you said, how is that going to affect uh, the national race? Well, it makes California huge in terms of picking the eventual nominee. This could benefit someone like Kamala Harris. Uh, she currently has the endorsement of most of the state senators uh, that are Democrats, as well as a few members of Congress, not Congressman Huffman yet, at least. Um with her name recognition in the state, she has the potential to get a lot of delegates very fast. Um, usually it kind of builds up where a lot of the early states don't have a whole lot of delegates. So someone can camp out in Iowa and have a really good finish and then it kind of launches them. California is going so early in the process, you have to start running ads here. Like you can't reach everyone. So the airwaves are going to be blanketed. It'll be really interesting uh, being here. And it's actually an interesting thing. So with the primary, there's a, um, you ha- in order to get delegates, you have to get at least 15% of the vote. Now, in most years, that wouldn't really matter all that much. But with however many candidates we're going to have, potentially 20, who knows, uh, there could be a lot of candidates that just miss out. And if you don't get any delegates from California, that's a lot to miss out on. Um, so would would you call yourself a, a committed Democrat? You're a proud member of the Democratic Party? Uh, I have been a registered Democrat for four years since I was first allowed to register to vote. Okay. So um, <laughs> is is this glut of candidates, is this good for the Democratic Party? Yeah. Uh, now, if you can't coalesce behind a candidate at the end, then that's an issue. But primaries are where the parties make... Uh, decide where they want to go. So I don't see an issue. Now, if it divides people more than it already is and everyone and there's shady stuff that happens and no one feels really satisfied after the primary, that's where I'd be worried. But for now, I'm fine with there being a lot of candidates. And the Democratic Party has changed its way of, uh, since the last, um, since the 2016 election, has de-emphasized the role of superdelegates. Can you talk a little bit about that? So specifically, they've, I believe superdelegates don't have a vote on the first ballot at the convention. However, because there are so many candidates, it could very likely go to a second ballot where no candidate is able to get a majority, at which case the superdelegates would have a vote. So in most years, I don't believe superdelegates would have that big of a influence anymore, but they're still there. They're not, they didn't go anywhere. So if we have a, a contested convention, um, then that is when con- contested convention, meaning we don't have a clear winner at the end of the first round of voting at the Democratic uh, National Convention, that's when the superdelegates could become most useful. Or yeah, would become most they useful. would be very important at that point. And it would be a, it, one of the things with a lot of the candidates that don't necessarily um, have that great of a shot of winning, they could end up playing kingmakers in the end. Because say you have a certain little pot of delegates, those delegates are valuable. I mean, they have the ability to swing a race one way or another. 
and kind of figure out who's going to be the eventual nominee. So if it goes to a contestant convention, all bets are off. Who knows? <laughs> so um, do, you, do you think what's happening after looking at the initial um, race is that we've seen a, a run to the left by a lot of candidates, um, a, a plane to the kind of hardcore committed Democratic base uh, towards the left of the party? Well, yeah, I think a lot of candidates, they realize that in order to be competitive, in order to really have that energy of like people wanting to go out and like knock doors for you in different states, that that matters. Bernie's campaign uh, now, what, three years ago really demonstrated that, that you have if you have energized people who want to go out and support you, then you can make a, a lot of headway in a primary. So with that, um, with a lot of people signing on for universal um, health care, Medicare for all, does that take some of the wind out of out of Bernie's sales. If, if we have a bunch of folks who are left of center running for the Democratic nomination. Possibly. I mean, it does split the people who supported him last election who might not all support him this election. But I think that's happening on both sides of like the more like moderate centrist wing and the progressive wing. There's just so many candidates that it's being split in so many ways that I think that happens to every candidate. Okay. So um, in... There are these fun websites you can go to uh, based in Scotland and other places where you can bet on just about everything. And you can bet on the U.S. presidential race. So if you were to put a um, hundred bucks down today, you have to do it. Uh, who are you betting will be the 2020 Democratic nominee? I think if I had to bet, I I would say Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. Not because she's my first choice, but I think so far she's shown herself or herself to be quite capable campaigning, and she seems to have like a strong base of support. Um, but again, there's so many candidates running; it's like she might have a one in five shot, and that's like the best of any candidate. <laughs> All right, well, play your odds. Um, so Nick, thank you for, for joining us for the last little bit here of Thursday Night Talk, and thank you all out there for listening. Um, I will be back on March 7th for the next Thursday Night Talk. Hope okay. to see you then. Thanks for having me.